Our reading this evening is taken from Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 17 through to 4, verse 1, and it can be found on page 11184 of your church Bibles. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, subject yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes on you and curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please do sit down. Father God, please would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you and see Jesus more clearly in your words. Please speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're on page 1,184. I'm continuing looking at this letter to the Colossians. Welcome if you're with us for the first time. We've been looking at this letter from, that Paul wrote and uh, thinking about what it means in our lives today. We're going to try and do that again now. There's a type of celebrity that only reaches the top by being completely obsessed at all times with what other people think of them. So uh, Mozart, here we go, Mozart, I don't think that's an original picture of him, but uh, Mozart wrote in a letter to his father, I am never in a good humour when I'm in a town where I'm quite unknown. He couldn't cope with people kind of not knowing exactly who he was and, and approving of him. Um, then there was uh, Marlene Dietrich, uh, who used to, apparently she used to record the applause that followed her performances. And uh, she, what she did was she got all the different rounds of applause that she'd recorded from all the different places she'd been, and she put them on one record. And she used to stick this record on and play it to her friends uh, when they came round. And it was just nothing but rounds of applause. And she'd go, that, that was Rio... That was Cologne, that was Chicago, and, and on it goes. Um, politicians then can, can struggle with the, with the same thing. There's an old French story of a revolutionary sitting in a Paris cafe who suddenly hears a disturbance outside, and he jumps to his feet and he cries, there goes the mob, I am their leader, I must follow them. You've probably heard that before, but it's sort of classic. Um, what about, last one, David Lloyd George, uh, once Prime Minister, famous for his 
sensitivity to public opinion. And a friend was, um, was asked, what happened to Lloyd George when he was alone by himself and nobody was there? And a friend replied, when Lloyd George is alone in the room, there is nobody there. In other words, you see, his whole life was about being uh, held up in the opinion of others. That's all that mattered to him. Well, we see that kind of narcissism in others, um, and uh, we can spot it and we think, oh dear, that's not very good when we see it in other people. But the, the beguiling thing about it, I don't know if you agree, is that it's normally, normally blindingly obvious to everyone if we are like that, and we can see it in others, but actually we can be completely blind to it in ourselves. We can com be completely unaware that that is what is going on um, in our own hearts. Living for the opinion of others is a kind of idol worship. It's a symptom of sin. The Bible, the, talk, the Bible talks about sin. It's one of the things that it talks about. Because it's a way of saying, I don't need to listen to God to let him tell me who I am. I can define myself. And I will look to other people to affirm me in that. So Paul's letter to the Colossians that we've been looking at has been about getting us to lift our eyes off our present circumstances, the here and now, to see Jesus as he really is, the king of the universe, the one by whom everything was created, for whom everything exists, the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn of the church, the one in whom we have complete fullness and freedom when we trust him. Fullness means we don't need to look anywhere else for fulfillment. If we're trusting Jesus that means that we're totally loved. We are totally accepted. We have nothing left to prove. So the big message, if you've been with us, you'll have heard this. The big message has been stick with Jesus. Don't look anywhere else. That was the message, particularly of the first half of the book, chapters 1 and 2. And then chapter 3, verse 1, we saw a, few, a couple of weeks ago. Set your minds and set your hearts on things above. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This is the kind of therefore do this that follows all that he said in the first half of the book. Set your hearts not on earthly things, he says, not on the here and now, those opinions of others that we were just thinking about. Don't, don't think about them. Fix your eyes and your heart instead, not on, not on what other people think of you, but on that place in heaven where Christ is seated and where, and where you and I are seated with him. Because if we trust in Jesus, we've died and risen already as far as God is concerned. And that is ultimate reality now as we wait for Jesus to return. So then, how do we live now? That was the question then. How do we live now? Well, verses 5 to 17, chapter 3, by putting to death our old ways, by putting on a new life. And now, from the verses we just heard, from verse 18 uh, to chapter 4, verse 1, he spells that out in terms of relationships in the household. And so he's saying, setting our hearts and minds on things above isn't about big, public, obvious displays of religious faith or whatever it is, but it's actually about everyday relationships. Everyday relationships, particularly in the household whatever that looks like in our individual circumstances and in one sense you can sum it up instead of having a life that we so often have where we're obsessed with the opinion of others 
He's saying, now let your life be a life where you're not obsessed with the opinion of others, you're obsessed with serving others. You're obsessed with laying down your life because your life is hidden with Christ in God. By living this life of love, serving Christ in, with your whole heart wherever you go. It's about relationships, not rituals. It's about uh, just the daily routine of life. It's about, you know, washing up, not showing off. So he highlights in these verses, as we heard, he highlights three pairs of relationships. And both then and now, what he says is deeply countercultural and challenging. I don't know what you thought of what you heard and whether you thought, oh my goodness, what's, what are these words doing here? What do we make of these in 2023? As we read about wives and, and children and, and slaves even. I mean, my, my goodness, what are we supposed to think about this? Well, we need to look and, and read this very carefully because this is still God's word for today, but in a world that looks very different from the one that Paul was speaking into um, 2,000 years ago. Very different in some ways and yet not in others. We might also think as we read this, well, I'm not married, maybe for some of us, or I'm not a, a parent, or I'm not a slave, hopefully we would say, but again, this still has much to say to us, all of us, in different ways. So we need to listen and see what this is saying. So let's just go through and see these. So you can see on the back of the notice sheet, first of all, from verses 18 and 19, he starts by saying, wives and husbands, it's about submit and love. So verse 18, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so we read this now and we think, come on, you know, it's 50 years since like the sexual revolution in the 1960s. You know, what are we still doing reading about this now? What's going on? Well, we, Corin mentioned these books that we've got at the back. It so happens tomorrow night there's a men's book group. and We're going to be looking at this particular book, which you might not have time if you haven't read it to read it before tomorrow night. But do buy this and take it away and read it. But this is called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. And it's all about the values that we take for granted in our world today, like equality and freedom. And, and the basic thesis of the book, and it's very persuasive, is that the reason the Western world believes in those values today that make us kind of read verses like that and go, oh, what's going on here? The reason the Western world believes those values is not in spite of Christianity, but because of it. That is the kind of basic thesis of the book. So 2,000 years ago, there was no equality, no freedom. What changed? Well, Jesus Christ came into the world, and the world became a very different place. So I recommend you read this, this book if you want to think about this further. But it's very helpful, actually, for shedding light even just on these verses that we've just heard read, because it makes the case that the real sexual revolution wasn't the one that happened in the 1960s, but the one that happened 2,000 years ago. Now, you could say that the 1960s revolution said that women should be as free as men, and that involved contraception, the rejection of traditional marriage, which actually it could be argued was in the, in the interests of men, actually, wanting you know, more sex as much as it was in the interests of women. But, but Glenn Scrivener points out in this book that the revelation that took place 2,000 years ago was about saying men should be as constrained as women. So not women should be as free as men, but men should be as constrained as women. So in that, let me explain what that means. In, in that world, 
Well, actually, in that world then, men were free to do as they pleased sexually with whoever they, they were pleased, you know, male, female, slave or free, but women didn't have that freedom. They were constrained. So um, it talks about that there was no word in Latin, at least, for male virgin, but there was something like 25 different words for prostitute. Okay? Do you see that the kind of that, that just that the language difference tells you something? And so along comes Jesus with his teaching on marriage, and you can read it in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 19, you can read it in, in Mark chapter 10, and Paul is reflecting that kind of teaching here in, in what he's writing in this letter. And Jesus and Paul with him afterwards is saying something revolutionary. Because he's saying, men. The only appropriate place for sex is in a marriage between a man and a woman, returning to God's original intention for marriage in the first chapters of the book of Genesis. So these verses are not about men using women in whatever way they wish. This is about living as God intended human beings to live. Faithful in marriage or faithful in singleness. Neither is better than the other in the Bible's story telling of the story about human beings but in that particular world as he speaks particularly at this point to those who are married and are living out the christian life in their household in that world paul says submit and love wives submit to your husbands husbands love your wives what does he mean then that word submit that he addresses to wives it's very important to see this little details it's a different word from the word obey, which is the word in verse 20 and 22 for children and slaves. So it's striking that he chooses a different word because rhetorically it would make sense if he just you know, had the same word all the way through. But there's something about submission that Im implies a willingness, a kind of what you might call a voluntary willingness that doesn't necessarily have to be there with raw obedience. You see there's a slight difference between the two. So to obey is just do what you're told. To submit is to say, I choose willingly and voluntarily to look to somebody else for leadership. And then we need to look again because he qualifies it further to show what kind of submission he means. He says, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And that reminds us that submission isn't something weird. Actually, submission is something that every Christian, male or female, does in relation to Jesus himself. We all submit to Christ. And actually, in a more general way, we submit to one another as well. And that, that's a good thing. It's a freeing thing. In the Book of Common Prayer, um, the, the old prayer book of the Church of England, it has this phrase where it talks about God's service, serving God, is perfect freedom. It's a kind of paradox, isn't it? Serving is freedom. So being, submitting to God is freedom. And the world thinks that's crazy and doesn't make sense. But it's, it's one of those things, it's, it sounds crazy until you actually try it. It's kind, of t it's kind of taste and see. And when you trust Jesus and you start going his way, what you find is, actually, no, that's not constraining and horrible. It is liberating because you are submitting to someone who loves you more than anyone else ever has or ever will. Somebody who gave his life for you. And so you don't have to live your life any longer panicking about what everyone else thinks of you, as we were thinking about at the start. Panicking about everyone's opinion of you because you know, no, I am loved perfectly by God. And so it's a joy to submit to him 
first of all. And so what Paul is saying here now is that that relationship that every Christian has with God is modelled then in the particular relationship that some people have in marriage. And actually, it's is spelt out more in, in Ephesians chapter 5, and another letter that Paul wrote. Um, and there's more about that there, but we have, we're not going to look at that now. But, but wives, he says, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, modelling the relationship between every Christian and God. So th- th- this is absolutely not a, a blank check for a husband to tell his wife what to do and expect you know, perfect obedience, because you know, obviously that would turn very easily to, to selfishness. But in submitting to Jesus, when we're asked to submit to Jesus, we're submitting to someone who is never selfish, the very opposite. And so that's important then to pair, we need to pair what he says here to wives with what Paul then says to husbands in the next verse. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And again, we're we're used to the idea of love in marriage. Actually, 2,000 years ago, that was a pretty unusual thing. You didn't marry for love. You know, love was what you got if you were lucky in, in, in marriage. But he says, no, husbands, love your wives. And the word refers not to romantic love here or sexual love, but the broadest sacrificial love, the kind of love in action with which Jesus loved us when he died for us. So when he says this then, does it, does it mean the husband can just order the wife around to suit his own desires? Well, no, if the husband is modelling his love on Jesus' love, it will be the opposite of that. He will give up his desires for the good of his wife. That is the kind of love that Paul is talking about. Now, there's a lot more we could say about that, and I'm you know, very happy to, to talk about that. Um, afterwards. And I know he, he, as we listen to this, not all of us are married by any means. Um, and if you're, uh, in one sense, this is saying, well, if you're not married and if you ever come to think about marriage, well, this is asking if you're a woman, could you submit to this man as, I, uh, as you do to Jesus? Well, if the answer is no, well, they're probably not the right person. If you're a man, it's about saying, could I lay down my life for this woman as Jesus did for her? And if the answer is no, well, they're probably not the right person. But along with that, we always need to remember, marriage isn't the kind of ideal for everybody, as if that's the one thing that everyone has to aspire to. It is one of two possible states for the people that he made. There is marriage, there is singleness, neither is better than the other. Both involve uh, things that can be hard at times. Both can involve uh, joy and satisfaction and contentment too in different ways. And there's been lots in this letter about living the Christian life, actually, uh, uh, whether we are single or married. There's there's lots of teaching through the letter on on that. But here he's, he's focusing particularly on that for us to understand that. So... Wives and husbands submit and love. And then speeding up a little bit, the next relationship, as Paul focused on the household setting, is children and fathers in particular. Children and fathers obey and then don't embitter from 20 to 21. So we we, we move from the more voluntary, willing submission word to a stronger, less nuanced obedience word. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the lord 
really? And we, and we think everything? Well, he, 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 can't mean, he can't mean things that would not please the Lord, because that would not please the Lord. If he says, obeying your parents will, will please the Lord. But on the whole, usually the issue is not that our parents are asking us to do something immoral or evil, unless you really do think, you know, tidying your room is morally wrong or something, but you're wrong if you think that. But I know, you know, we, we often feel like that. But, of course, there, you know, maybe things that we don't like or that we find particularly hard if we're still living with our parents. Um, it's fairly obvious what this means in the first, you know, 20 years or so of our lives. It, after that, it gets a bit more complicated, and even more so as, as parents head towards old age and possibly become the ones that we have to care for and possibly become more confused about things or, or whatever. Probably that isn't what Paul has in mind here. That, that isn't the situation he's speaking into. He's talking about the standard parent-child relationship, particularly in childhood. And he's basically making the point, what's the point he's saying? Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you are off the hook with obeying your parents any more than you're off the hook with obeying the law of the land or whatever it might be. But then the flip side comes. Fathers, and it's particularly fathers, he says, don't embitter your children. Don't make it hard for your children to respect and obey you because you're being a bit of an idiot. And speaking as a father, I know that, believe it or not, that is actually possible, um, that we can do, say and do things that don't actually make it easy for our children to... Uh, respect and obey just because we're being a bit selfish whatever but like wives and husbands you see it goes both ways and again he is subverting what you'd expect you see in that in that culture particularly you'd expect him to say fathers oh you know fathers treat your children however you like because you know you're the boss but he doesn't say that does he he says fathers don't embitter them or they will become discouraged so that's children and parents, children and fathers, then slaves and masters serve Christ together. And again, as we read this, you know, we think it's 2023. Why is Paul even writing this? Isn't it highly embarrassing that he writes this at all, that he doesn't, you know, why doesn't he argue straight away for the ending of slavery? We'd love to read that, wouldn't we, and think that would be something appropriate to read. Well, it's helpful to remember that this isn't all that Paul wrote about slavery in the, in the New Testament. So he wrote to Philemon in another letter, encouraging him to free his slave who had run away and was coming back to him, and he encouraged him to receive him back as a brother, no longer a slave. Um, he wrote to, uh, his letter to Timothy, and he told him that slave trading was a sin. So he was very clear that the trading of slaves, the treatment of human beings in that kind of way was, was not appropriate for Christians at all. So it's often pointed out that the seeds for the ending of the slave trade were sown right here in the New Testament. And again, actually, this, this little book that I was just talking about, The Air We Breathe, is a great book to read on that. But Paul's concern as he writes this is real life in the here and now. And if you think about it, Christianity, as he writes, is a tiny minority, hardly in a position to overthrow a major cultural feature like slavery, which was just taken for granted, again like with wives and husbands like with children and fathers he is subverting what they would expect so what does he say look at this it's extraordinary isn't it? he says slaves don't just obey because you have to obey even when nobody's watching because verse 24 
it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And literally it says, it is the Lord Christ you are slaving for. And even more extraordinary, verse 25, the, the master himself is also serving that same Lord. You're all in this together, he says, to slave and master. And actually, that was one of the things that was particularly extraordinary about churches in the early church, was, was slaves and masters together in church on the same footing before worshipping God alongside each other. Now, today, we give thanks, great thanks, that slavery of this kind has been abolished, at least in the West. I mean, in, in, actually, in, in, in some ways, this continues in, in less obvious ways today in modern slavery. But it is important that we see the way that Paul subverts these things, partly because it's increasingly something people will say. So one of the reasons we need to be clear on this is just because as we talk to our friends and we talk to them about Christian things, one of the things they might say to us is, oh, but you know, you can't take the New Testament seriously because the New Testament's in favour of slavery. It's just one of the things people might try and say to you. And uh, we just need to be clear, that's not the case. The New Testament gave Christians the tools to end slavery, and it was Christians like William Wilberforce who made that happen. We need to know and understand that. But we also need to, to, to hear this and hear how it speaks to us, because we can see principles here for how we relate to other authorities. So... Being an employee or an employer is not exactly the same as the, as the slave and master relationship. But actually, you can see how the same principles would apply when we're at work, wouldn't you? Can't you? So obey not just when your employer's eye is on you, but when it's not. So I know, you know, these days with work from home, you know, people, they, the employers have set things up so they can tell what you're doing with your mouse, haven't they? So that you can... Uh, you know, whether you're online or whether you're sort of, you know, off doing something else. Um, that it feels like our, our people's eye is on us more and more. And you can even buy one of those, um, what is it, a mouse um, mover that will move your mouse for you so that you can, you can actually be away from the computer and it will be moving the mouse so that the employer thinks he's it. See, that, that is not what Paul is talking about here, is it? It's the opposite, you see. Even if you have not, no such system, be the kind of person who's actually serving and getting on with what they've been asked to do, because ultimately you are serving not the boss, but God himself. You're serving Christ. That's the point, isn't it? It is the Lord Christ you are serving, whoever you are, whatever your job is, however important it feels in the world's eyes, in God's eyes, you're serving him, and that gives value to every activity we have as human beings, whatever shape that takes. We're serving him. So be encouraged as we live out this Christian life in the light of, of all that Jesus has done. As we've been raised with Christ, we have our hearts and minds set on things above, not on earthly things. We're not obsessed anymore with what people think of us. We're obsessed with serving Christ and serving others, letting that impact the day-to-day -day lives that we have sticking with Jesus, even these everyday relationships in our families and our homes and at work, all for him, all in his name. So let's pray now.
whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, working for the Lord, not for human masters. Father, might we see in our own lives this week what that looks like in our individual circumstances, remembering who we're serving and why. Thank you that we don't need to be obsessed with what others think because we are living before you. And that gives all that we do value and significance. Help us in the other relationships that we have, whether as wives or husbands, whether as children or parents, to put these things into practice, to live countercultural lives that might be different from the world around us, but that through the way that we live would point to Jesus and what he's done for us that we might speak of him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.